you know, it reminds me of a term that's used very frequently in cognitive psychology is that nothing or good, is nothing is good or bad until we think it is. This, this again, is a way of really seeing that experience itself is not as we think it is and that there are ways of radically recontextualising, reconfiguring. And I think, as we said before we started recording, you made the, 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 the comment of overhauling the engine. I'm just reminded of when I'm doing this quite frequently now just to sort of jolt people and, and to test people and even doing this for myself as, as, as much as I can. You're talking about this frontal cortex and trying to engineer a certain life of, of planning that out. And when I've gone back and asked people, uh, could you have predicted in any way that you would be in this position right now 20 years ago? I have never, ever in my life heard somebody said, yes, I have orchestrated my life exactly the way that I'd planned to do so. What most people say is, well, I plan to go down a certain path, but for whatever for whatever reason it deviated. It deviated off into ways that um, they could have never predicted and oftentimes deviated off in a way that had they planned it, they would have been horrified. Yet life had a funny way of taking them in a direction that uh, may not have um, given them the desired outcome but gave them other gifts that they, they couldn't have possibly um, planned for, and yet they weren't doing it anyway. And I think that's the conclusion based on the discussions there, when people look back and they realise, I wasn't doing any of this. So if we realise we're not doing any of this anyway, it almost gives us permission to just say, I'm, I'm going to let this go rather than trying to control, I'm just going to dance. And, and uh, as we, we say, the great Alan Watts line of what is life, uh, life is a dance. Uh, and if you, if you are dancing with somebody, it's not a race to the end of the dance. It's, it's an enjoyment of the flow and the beauty of the dance. It's floating on the music. It's being lost in the display that is life. In your professional life, uh, you know, a great deal of your work is in building resilience and, uh, and looking at methods by which people can recover from um, emotional labour, physical labour, psychological labour. This involves a nimble, flexible um, view that is not fixed on a singular outcome that uh, is either um, to be favoured or, or, or to, be, to be pushed away from it. The resilience is, is rolling with the punches, really, 
and sometimes discovering that the punches are the kisses. Punches are not the, the kicks in the head that we thought they were. They actually are opening to uh, whole new vistas and, 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 and ways that we could never engineer, have engineered but are, um, are, are part of the beauty and unfolding creativity of our lives. punches uh, that come and and I mean, these punches that we can get can really wind us mm. uh, they can really knock us down um, I think we've all had uh, a version uh, of these and, and for, for some uh, it may be uh, several years after that event until they start to see as you said the uh, the gift the gift in that knockdown and I suppose uh, somebody who is more resilient is able to um, to look for that gift, as opposed to somebody who's less resilient. They get caught up in the um, in the emotion and the tragedy of the event, uh, where somebody who's more resilient um, doesn't don't let the emotion stick as much. They are looking for. Uh, the, the gift in this experience they're open to what life is giving them or maybe even trying to teach them and the value of these perspectives are to make life uh, roll with ease rather than um, be as we said a while back you know braced for a blow or braced for a punch uh, and we can see sometimes in, our, in others more readily than ourselves how easily we can uh, become trapped in a cognitive loop that is terribly self-destructive and, and, and is so uh, laden with fear that uh, threats appear everywhere um, and that we see the world as hostile, uncomfortable and those in it as somehow uh, intent on causing us harm. I think it, it, you're absolutely right. It's so much easier to uh, witness it in ourselves and even in the psychological uh, context, it's, uh, you know, even if, you, if you're playing the role of the therapist and the other person the role of the, the patient, uh, the therapist um, oftentimes comes from a, a, a detached perspective and it was interesting... Um, my uh, cousin, who is a psychologist, helps women with postnatal depression, and she said that uh, until she had her own child, and until she started going, uh, experiencing a version of what the women that she was treating is, she suddenly began to realise just how difficult an experience it was. 
even with everything that she knew and what she was required to do uh, to help her out of it, she wasn't able to to do it. And that for her uh, not only invoked a greater sense of, of empathy for the, for the people that she'd been dealing with uh, previously, but it also demonstrated to her is that uh, even the things, the, the, the techniques that are available out there that we use to try to control this or halt this, uh, oftentimes have little effect. I think that's um, a very uh, sobering experience to have and it, it also often demonstrates that the feeling state is very different from um, the imagined uh, overlay that we might put uh, on an experience that we've never had in our life before. someone who's never suffered from depression and suddenly has that uh, occur in their life be totally shocked uh, by the experience and also completely uh, horrified at their insensitivity to those that they felt just needed a good kick up the pants to get themselves back on track. And men in particular um, who, who, have, who have had this and uh, the ones who have you know, come through that experience um, become a lot more attuned to others. Um, I've heard a lot, of the, a lot of comments in particular from men that as a result of that experience they've been able to um, pick up the signs in others, maybe that they're not coping, other males that are not coping so well, simply for the fact that they've been been through that experience uh, and as a result of being through that experience not only have they been able to, to pick it up um, in others but they've also been able to assist them in, in a really positive non-judgmental way. With any, of, with any of these pathologies that we may encounter, and, and indeed uh, it's also true for the, for the pleasures as well, um, that in many ways um, we're not engineering them, we're not asking for them, we're not even sure where they come from. Uh, and, and much of our, of our energy, I think, is misplaced sometimes in making up stories that uh, simply are ways of making sense for feeling states that, you know, the stories themselves are incapable of truly describing. And then the stories themselves become so empowered that um, they can sometimes be the roadblock in, in actually making any progress in the feeling state. So, so once again, this is, is where we locate ourselves. Uh, are we locating ourselves as objects, sensation, 
Are we locating ourselves as emotion and feeling, all of which arises and passes in what we are? Or as the doer. Yes, or as the doer that um, seems to really uh, have a big dunce cap on uh, in terms of how effective they are as a doer. <laughs> So again, if we're looking back to that to that path in, is what happens if we if we take that path or, or take the angle of of non-doership? If we take the angle of non-doership, we immediately um, identify or make visible the sense that doing is arising in something that is spacious and not locatable. Uh, so the value of, of exploring um, the path of non-doership is simply immediately getting a sense that that idea of ourselves as a fixed entity sitting in our skulls simply doesn't hold. Um, the, the, the process that we are involved in, uh, which is living, uh, is something that doesn't need that overlay of a little uh, individual pulling levers to make stuff happen. And yet so much energy and investment in story is all about that individual pulling levers uh, that's not there. And, and yet this is so conditioned for, for so many human beings and we've spoken about this, there is an aspect of fear when people look at this aspect of saying, yeah, okay, what's it going to be like if I can sink into this completely, if I can move all my chips in, if I can really uh, witness that I'm not doing this. There is a real fear around that, that their life as they know it um, could be significantly um, affected or disrupted as a result. Yes, uh, the, the myth of that fear is that um, somehow they're losing the doer, but the doer never existed. You know, so w when we have our se the sense of ourselves as a separate doing self, we actually are suffering from uh, a possession. And like many possessions, they're imaginary. So we're possessed with the spirit that never existed. Uh, and um, I think this process itself is, is um, not really one that uh, immediately annihilates the doer. In some, in some cases, uh, people experience a, a direct awakening full of fireworks and heavenly music. But for, for the great, great many people, it is a gradual relaxation uh, into a spaciousness that um, is very ease-filled and they see this notion that the doer was simply um, an imagined um, series of, as Gary uh, says, a series of post-it notes. Um, the post-it notes are, are often not even written by ourselves. They might be, they might be um, uh, a parent that's uh, said, uh, you're a lazy child or you're a procrastinator. And so that becomes uh, a placeholder in our idea of self. 
uh, someone else might have said we were very good uh, at sport, uh, but not particularly uh, smart in, in class. And so these, uh, these things we consider as, uh, as our character, and it can be something that once we uh, put the post-it note uh, uh, on our forehead, we see the world from that perspective. And, and we've spoken before about life-limiting beliefs, but uh, you know, if we've been fortunate enough in our life to see some of those explode, um, we recognise that those post-it notes um, never existed or described uh, things in the way that we thought they, they were. Now, all our self is, all that doer is, is a bunch of those post-it notes. Rip them up. Let them go. If you decide to go all in and if you commit to this on a regular basis and if a lot of these practices and these rituals or routines that you create in your day of attending to this start to become a habit, uh, this process deepens without any thought uh, and it becomes, again, as a, a process, it's not, as, not somewhere where you arrive at, a, at an intended goal, it's just a, a place that continues to deepen. I mean, we can bring another element to the table here because as you experience uh, greater stillness and greater ease, as you open to your true nature, this is a very pleasurable experience. So you could imagine it that suddenly, the, the, if you like ice cream, the best ice cream uh, is being offered to you. You don't really worry too much about, uh, about that. It's going to be something you enjoy. And that enjoyment, that pleasure can help propel the journey in a way that um, again reinforces the idea that you're not doing it. Suddenly it's something that you really want to do. Mm. I mean, who, you know, who chose why you like that particular flavour the most? Mm. You know, the particular um, activities, uh, skills, talents that we've been given in this world, did we choose them? The, the, value of, the value of this journey is in discovering we're not who we thought we were and who we actually are is limitless, boundless, deathless and capable of absolute natural ease in the world. Was never born and never dies.
Over the course of the last year, our work has moved into adolescent uh, populations, in particular in the health and well-being of, of students and uh, in, in senior secondary school. So this is in an Australian context from years 10 to 12. And we've had the opportunity to interview uh, a number of students from years 10 to 12. And so if we're looking at the age ranges, we're looking from, from 15 years to 18 years of age and looking at what are, or what they consider to be their biggest stressors. And what was really interesting with uh, the majority of the feedback that came back was that their, their stresses were not immediate. Uh, their stresses were three to four years ahead of their current place in time. So we are talking about year 10 students 15 to 16 years of age, very concerned with how their lives uh, are going to look um, when they are 19 or, or 20. Uh, such fears as, um, you know, what will I be doing for a job? Um, will I have enough money? Um, where will I be living? Will I, will I be independent? Will I be happy? Um, will I have good friends? Will I be in a relationship? And I was immediately taken back uh, by this because my initial reaction was just stay in the now. Stay in the present moment. There's no need to go forward. There's no need to project forward three to four years from now because there's no way we could possibly imagine what that future's gonna be. And then upon further reflection, what I noticed is that that's where myself and a number of people that I speak to are very rarely in the present moment. We're always two, three, four, for others even 10 years ahead of where we actually are. And, and I noticed that my initial reaction was go to the present. Just stay in the present moment focus and then upon the experience of myself and, and those of others I speak to being very rarely in that moment and and almost having the sense of hypocrisy in in the sense of how can we tell uh, this new generation of, of young adults coming into the world to be present to stay present in the moment stay present in the uh, in the moment enjoy where you are and yet not be doing that ourselves. And I think the, the thing with um, uh, this whole idea of being in the now and presence is, you know, almost become a cliche in the world. Um, and it, it really, in many ways, hides a, an enormously powerful um, contemplation that the more we can, can bring to our attention, the more significant and deeper the, the impact and the path can, can become. And I, I think that your point about the hypocrisy of, of discussing, um, discussing a, a way to be and, and then not feeling that we represent that ourselves, 
is, is a very, very valuable and, and uh, an important consideration to make. And I think the, the, what's true for many is that they will feel that they understand or embody a particular principle, but it will become a little like any other distraction in their life, any other sort of entertainment. So you can think to yourself, I'm a great meditator, I'm a great Buddhist, um, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. Uh, and, and that's just a, an, another post-it note on this uh, mythic pole of who I am that I, I can escape into when other parts of my life are not, that, uh, are not going that well. Again, it's like a sort of a, a drug or distraction. But I, I think the, what we really need to, to go into here is a, is a very, very practical, fundamental appreciation of what is meant by now or presence. And to do so with an eye to the fact that our sense of ourselves in time is something that is cultural, rather than actual. It's, it's something that is not a hard reality. It's just a way that we have grown up to think of ourselves in the world. And it can be quite easily deconstructed or seen through. And the value of doing that is to suddenly open to the fact that in the moment, right now, we are safe, whole and secure and that the reason we often feel that this is not the case is simply because the mind has escaped into doing what it, uh, it loves to do and that is to predict and simulate imagined futures and have us prepare for threats that may be coming down the, the road towards us, even though in our experience those threats never really escape from imagination and into the present. I think it's also a good time to record to recognise now um, human beings' capacities is that when uh, they perceive uh, potentially a, a worst-case scenario, and I think it'd be difficult to argue that a worst-case scenario would would be would be death um, of how they would handle that. And it's normally not death of themselves; it's maybe uh, death of somebody that's close to them. And uh, through, through my time and my experience uh, with, uh, with my own personal grief, um, but then also seeing the grief of others, is that people typically respond in a far more resilient, uh, powerful, even enlightened way than they ever could have imagined. When, when we uh, project forward or try to predict what, what's going to go on, we 
in that moment we fail to realise just how capable and just what strength that lies within us. So, so, so even in our mind, so even in our mind, when we go to the worst case scenarios, if the worst case scenario was actually to play out, what we typically find is that we behave in a way that we could never have possibly imagined and it's normally far more functional than we could have ever predicted. So this is um, it's probably important that I highlight that this is something that you've been involved in many critical incidents, as they're called, where you'll be called in to deal with often uh, an unbelievably tragic situation in a workplace, and you'll be counselling both workers and sometimes family members in the immediate aftermath of, of an event that's turned their life upside down. And um, I think that what you're, what you're talking about here is that we have already on board uh, various highly adaptive responses that, are, that will be present without us needing to turn them on uh, that will deal with a situation effectively or in a way that we've, we surprise ourselves. Um, in in uh, in the response, yeah, pr- precisely right. I think in our when we project in our mind, we there's a projection of of everything falling apart, our lives falling apart, our you know us falling apart emotionally, and in in my experience and experience of others, that's not what happens. Um, there is, as you say, a, a functional response. Other people I made mention before call it a strength. Of, uh, of, of dealing with that situation and, and, and handling a situation in a far more effective way. Now, this is also just make mention that's not always the case. There are some people that, um, that can actually uh, fall apart uh, during that uh, time, but it's a very, very uh, small minority from, from what I've seen. Uh, normally, when people, upon reflection, They'll look back and, and their response will often be, I don't know how I was able to, in their words, be as strong as I was during that time. But again, they weren't doing it. Yes, no, wonderfully put. Um, and, and that last point about not them not doing it, I think just leads us right back to the start of, of this idea of um, what it is to be living in the present or living in the now uh, and that is that functionality when it is needed will be present uh, just as uh, I'm often saying these words arise from space the way they can become incoherent and stumble over themselves is if I start to uh, predict and project and attempt to control their course or flow and I, I'm generally doing that in an attempt to uh, impress or present myself to some imagined audience or imagined uh, imagined panel of judges and, and impress them favourably. So 
what you, you gave in that example is, is probably one of the uh, more or most confronting um, experiences that a human might have, the death of, of someone uh, that they, uh, someone close to them. Uh, in our everyday experience, what we are encountering is something or many states that are, are not on that scale at all. Yet the conventional uh, mechanism is still the predict predictive mechanism, the, the frontal cortex simulator, st is still working overtime to attempt to bring this into uh, a form that we can predict and control. <laughs> 